Pico Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshalek. Later in the program, we have part three of an ongoing series from environmental correspondent Zero Rose. He speaks with eco-architect and sustainability pioneer Bill Brown. In today's installment, they address retrofitting existing structures like the university's historic limestone buildings, how to source sustainable materials to offset climate change, and how construction methods impact indoor air quality. And now for your environmental reports. News at IU reports that to build on its legacy of helping its students and alumni contribute to efforts to find solutions to pressing global challenges, the Indiana University Kelly School of Business is establishing the Institute for Environmental and Social Sustainability. Nearly 45 professors representing every department at Kelly School in Bloomington and Indianapolis are actively engaged in research involving environmental and social sustainability. The Institute will enable the school to better support and broaden these activities while also offering new courses and educational opportunities for students. Quote, many companies are increasingly addressing environmental and sustainability issues to better understand the impact of their activity on people and society, end quote, said Ash Sony, Dean of the Kelly School. Our faculty has been engaged in these issues for a while, and this institute will help us to better under to better positioned to make a difference, to be better positioned to make a difference, excuse me. A key to success will be whether this institute can move the legislator toward a more progressive posture. The Public News Service reports Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb ignored pleas from environmental advocates who were asking him to veto a bill that gives lawmakers more power over state agencies. To Hoosiers not familiar with the technical language in House Bill 1623, it may be difficult to decode how it applies to everyday life. But Sam Carpenter understood what's at stake and was quick to call it a bad bill. Carpenter, executive director of the Hoosier Environmental Council, worried that the legislation could affect people's health and the environment. He said it creates more paperwork for state regulators dealing with the ash left behind when coal is burned to make electricity and collected in ponds, most of them unlined. Quote, Indiana has one of the highest, if not the highest, number of coal ash ponds in the state compared to other states in the nation, end quote, he said. And they are leaching toxic metals, mercury, arsenic, and lead into our waterways. However, the bill's supporters have said it streamlines rulemaking and standardizes government procedures. Carpenter said his group wanted more common-sense regulation and blamed special interest groups and a tendency from some who push back against any new law. 
Carpenter predicted that the legislation will limit regulators' ability to effectively do their jobs. We're really relying on federal regulations for Indiana problems, he said. Holcomb signed House Bill 1623 into law this past Thursday. Indiana Public Media has reported both good news and bad news regarding the environment. When the governor approves the state budget, several Indiana environmental and conservation programs will see a funding boost. The Hoosier Environmental Council said the legislator appropriated a significant amount of money for land conservation and trails, though a lot less than it had hoped for. Indiana plans to give $10 million to the President Benjamin Harrison Conservation Trust Fund. The HEC said it's not the $25 million the governor proposed, but it's still the most the state has ever appropriated to the trust without the help of federal dollars. Lawmakers also earmarked $30 million for trails, though the governor had proposed $50 million. HEC Executive Director Sam Carpenter said a lot of people visited the Indiana State Parks and trails during the pandemic stay-at-home orders, and that demand remains strong. Quote, these are investments that help retain and attract talent in Indiana. As I know that that's a big focus for the legislators in the General Assembly as well as for our corporate businesses, end quote, he said. An extra $5 million will go to the Clean Water Indiana program, which will help farmers and landowners reduce erosion into the waterways. A report last year said Indiana had the most polluted rivers and streams of any state, mostly due to runoff from large animal farms. The state also increased fees for motorboats, which will result in an extra $1.2 million for things like improving habitats for aquatic life. At a time when more Hoosiers are getting outside, the legislator has made even more budget cuts to Indiana's underfunded and understaffed environmental agencies. The funding for the Indiana Department of Natural Resources for the 2022 and 2023 fiscal years will be about 3% lower than the current budget. Even though the Indiana Department of Environmental Management receives more money now from the state's general fund, it will be operating with about 11% fewer dollars overall. The Hoosier Environmental Council said budgets for the state environmental agencies haven't recovered since the 2008 recession, making it difficult for them to retain employees and ultimately do their jobs. The New York Times reports the Biden administration on Thursday announced the first regulations to limit greenhouse pollution from existing power plants, capping an unparalleled string of climate policies that, taken together, could substantially reduce the nation's contribution to global warming. The proposals are designed to effectively eliminate carbon dioxide emissions from the nation's electricity sector by 2040. The regulations governing power plants come on the heels of other Biden administration plans to cut tailpipe emissions by speeding up the country's transition to electric vehicles, to curb methane leaks from oil and gas wells, and to phase down the use of a planet-warming chemical in refrigerants. Together with the 2022 Inflation Reduction Act, which is pouring more than $370 billion into clean energy programs, the actions would catapult the United States to the forefront of the fight to constrain global warming. Quote, 
We are in the decisive decade for climate action, and the president's been clear about his goals in this space, and we will meet them, end quote. Mr. Biden's senior climate advisor, Ali Zaidi, said in a phone call with reporters on Wednesday. The government is not mandating the use of equipment to capture carbon emissions before they leave the smokestack, a nascent and expensive technology. Rather, it is setting caps on pollution rates, which power plant operators would have to meet. They could do that by using a different technology or, in the case of gas plants, switching to a fuel source like green hydrogen, which does not emit carbon. The nation's 3,400 coal and gas-fired power plants currently generate about 25% of greenhouse gases produced by the United States, pollution that is dangerously heating the planet. It will be interesting to see how Indiana's lawmakers respond to this challenge. The lawmakers have been busy promoting coal, declaring that natural gas is not a greenhouse gas and placing barriers to wind and solar. The Indiana Business Journal reports that shipping containers can have a new life. What happens to shipping containers when they return to land after a trip across the ocean? Increasingly, they've become a place to live on both short and long-term basis. EcoSolutions offers five container home models which are made in Alabama. They range from 320 square feet with one bedroom for $60,000, oh, and one bathroom, uh, to 1,280 square feet for a two-story model with three bedrooms and one bathroom for $165,000. Fishers-based EcoSolutions is one company looking to expand its footprint in the container housing industry, which is growing in Indiana. Home builders include custom container builders in Indianapolis and Rock Creek Container in Markle. Globally, the container homes market is expected to grow from $59 billion in 2022 to $87 billion by 2029, according to Fortune Business Insights. EcoSolutions works to turn shipping containers into permanent housing for people looking for an affordable home and into temporary housing for natural disaster survivors. Since its founding in 2020, EcoSolutions has sold 59 container homes. Quote, across from the United States, we see a lack of housing in general, as well as attainable housing for individuals to be able to get into, end quote. EcoSolutions President Peter Rodriguez said, manufacturers like EcoSolutions are permitted to use two types of shipping containers, one-use containers that have crossed the ocean a single time, and wind and watertight containers that have taken seven to ten trips across the sea. While Alabama allows containers that have been used multiple times, Indiana only allows one-use containers to be repurposed. Over the course of the next 100 years, climate change will create millions, even hundreds of millions, of refugees. Many will leave coastal cities seeking higher ground. And now we go to Zero Rose with part three of his interview with Bill Brown of Indiana University's Environmental Resilience Institute as they discuss how much energy is used in the built environment 
embodied carbon and adaptive reuse of older buildings, sustainable materials like certified timber, and the holistic health conditions to consider when building green. Global uh, carbon emissions related to energy that the built environment takes up with some 28% in the operational emissions and about 11% in the materials and construction. So I don't know how many people realize that basically a third of energy use for heating, cooling, and powering is actually related to buildings. You know, people think about cars and larger infrastructural things, but uh, making an impact on the buildings and the homes is a pretty considerable dent in the uh, climate change issue. People are talking more and more about embodied carbon. And because it is critically important in the near term, and it's you're investing in that at the beginning of the project, and you can gradually chip away at that if you have an energy positive building. But um, you know, the embodied carbon is something you, you actually look at on a solar panel as well. And then turns out uh, in most of the research that I've seen, it takes a solar panel about two years to uh, make up for its embodied carbon in the renewable energy that it produces. Um, and if you had enough of an energy positive building, it would eventually uh, catch up and pay back its embodied carbon. But it makes more sense to try to minimize the amount of embodied carbon in the building in the first place. And again, if you have an existing building, that's a great place to start. How much of that existing building can you reuse? And how much of those existing materials can you reuse rather than replace and avoid that embodied carbon? There's also a huge amount of research now that's going into materials science. How do you make low carbon concrete? How do you make low carbon steel? And uh, amazingly, some of the industries in those fields have zero energy goals. Uh, zero carbon goals for the future. And that might rely on developing low carbon fuels like hydrogen that was produced by electrolysis through um, electricity going to PV systems that are powering the electrolysis. So essentially you have hydrogen fuel from sunlight and then you use that hydrogen fuel in the manufacturing process. That's uh, something that is in the nation stages of development, but it's certainly uh, an area of research. And we're seeing some companies now that have low carbon materials. Uh, Interface Carpet, for example, has a, a carbon neutral carpet. And uh, so some of this research has uh, resulted in some products that are already on the shelf that can be used to lower the embodied carbon. And um, Renewable materials like wood, again, especially if it's uh, wood that's grown in a sustainable forest setting, um, is quite low carbon, and there's some sequestration of carbon in the life cycle of that product. Eventually, it's going to be given up uh, if the building is torn down, the wood rots or burns, uh, that will release that carbon, but uh, you can sequester that carbon for the life of the building. If again, you want to be very careful about where that wood is coming from. 
And I've often thought that in Indiana, we have 5,000 certified forests that are well-managed forests that contain a lot of hardwood species that you know, are selectively harvested to maintain the health of the forest. That source of wood would be very sustainable, very uh, low embodied carbon. And uh, that's something that architects can utilize in their designs. And is that uh, private forests you're talking about or harvesting of the uh, public forests? Well, I was talking about the classified forests, which are um, privately owned forests. And uh, again, those are those tend to be very well-managed forests. The, the certified forest owners can get certified to be FSC certified, which is uh, the most stringent forest certification. And uh, that is recognized by the lead building rating system, for example. So if you use FSC certified wood in your product, in your project, um, you get extra credit for that. But again, that is a, an avenue available to small forest owners uh, to participate in that system. And uh, are there challenges in these adaptive rehab of existing buildings on things like the insulation or uh, the materials as far as having to kind of remove, you know, old, older toxic materials? or have ways to, you know, thicken the walls? I mean, do you employ anything like some kind of a passive solar, like in a, a greenhouse attachment as a way, have kind of a solar bank on a conventional building? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I taught a class uh, in energy and environmental design at the J. Irwin Miller, J. Irwin Miller Architecture Program in Columbus and uh, one of the first assignments I gave them was to try to figure out how they would take their uh, current building, the Republic building in Columbus and turn it into a net zero energy building. And um, what the trick with that project was is that it is a, listed on the National Register of Historic Buildings. So you kind of have uh, an interesting problem with historic buildings in that you're dealing with an existing shell of the building, but that existing shell also has historic value. So there are certain things you may not want to do. For example, uh, in this historic building I'm in, this, this house near the IU campus, I've got historic weighted wood windows behind me. If we were going to retrofit this house as a net zero energy or net positive energy house, we'd want to leave those windows and maybe look at uh, a clear glazing storm window, maybe an interior storm, something like that, that wouldn't interfere with the look of the system that would add some insulating value. So you look at things like that, you could probably add more insulation to the attic. You look for ways maybe you could insulate the band joists in the basement. Um, but with an existing building, sometimes you don't have as much leeway or things like insula insulation or changing out the windows that you would uh, with a, a brand new building. But you could typically look at the lighting systems and upgrade the lighting. You could um, look at other ways to save energy with controls. You could electrify the systems, go with a high performance electric heat pump or uh, geothermal. One of the projects that I worked on um, as the director of sustainability, we took our e-house, which is another 
house in this neighborhood that had those constraints and we added insulation. We did all those things that we added, um, geothermal heating and cooling with uh, vertical bore wells in the back. There's only like five feet of space in the back of the house to deal with. And we put in two 250 foot boreholes and, uh, did geothermal, did uh, LED lighting, um, upgraded the controls to sensors. And um, we put as much solar on the back roof of that house as we could. And we got near to net zero energy, but not quite there. Um, I've often thought uh, we need to add a back porch or something that would bring that up to energy positive, but uh, pretty close, even with an old 1932 house. So. I encourage people to reuse the existing buildings and add as much solar as you can to try to bring it up to net zero or energy positive, but you've already done a great thing by preserving that embodied energy, embodied carbon in the structure, and you've reused a piece of history and um, probably saved some money in the long run. And I suppose you uh, did a lot of that on the Indiana University campus with the historic uh, limestone buildings? Yes, I use a great example of that. Um, they've done, done a number of LEED Gold certified buildings that were existing buildings. And um, that's a trick to pull off, but um, can be done. And again, there's uh, green building rating systems that are specifically for existing buildings. And um, you can do just operations and maintenance, or you can do major renovations. So IU has done a number of those projects that were existing limestone buildings that you really can't do a lot of changes to. But the other thing about a commercial building is they tend to be uh, ventilation dominated. Uh, you, you have a lot of ventilation air in a commercial building. You're sucking outside air in, you're, you're exhausting your conditioned air. So a lot of times the insulation is not the key thing. It's the, the ventilation rate, which is important. And, you know, the other thing that um, I've taught my architecture students is that it's not just the energy that we should worry about. It's not just the embodied carbon we should worry about. We also need to worry about the people and their health. And so sometimes you have a trade-off between, say, ventilation rate for health and ventilation rate for energy savings. And you want to try to err on the side of health and um, make those systems perform as well as you can to reduce the energy consumption. But um, I have learned that it's not a good idea to increase energy efficiency at the cost of human health because most of the cost in any building that's occupied is gonna be the people in the building and their health is important. Their productivity is important and whether they come back the next day is important. So you don't want unhealthy buildings that make people sick. And um, that's another part of the puzzle that I think um, is very important that we consider. Yeah, that's definitely the, probably the most often the afterthought is uh, what I call a holistic health consideration of volatile organic compounds and things that build up if you make a place ultra tight you're holding all of those emanations in that's coming off the furniture and uh, getting chemical buildup in, in people. Um, do you uh, address materials and things that are going into the building uh, for that consideration a lot? 
Absolutely. It's, you don't have to worry so much about ventilation if you don't have poison in the building. So uh, keeping hazardous materials out of the building uh, and then ventilating, uh, those are two key strategies. And it's become a lot easier to select materials that are not hazardous. Uh, there are various uh, material rating systems out there now, and there are lists that architects can refer to and homeowners can refer to to kind of get to those green lists and those safe lists that uh, are important to consider. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. Are you looking for a way to make a difference on environmental issues? Here at Eco Report, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in South Central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for Eco Report, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. A bird watching for beginners class is being offered at Leonard Springs Nature Park on Saturday, May 20th from 7.30 to 9.30 a.m. The hike will include several stops to look for birds. Binoculars and field guides will be available. Sign up at bloomington.in.gov parks. The Indiana Nature Conservancy is offering a wildflower walk at the Hintz Rotahamel Nature Preserve in Brown County on Saturday, May 20th from 10 a.m. to noon. You can celebrate Endangered Species Day while enjoying the hills and ravines and be on the lookout for oak regeneration, wildflowers, and songbirds. A Kids to Park Day is taking place at the Fairfax State Recreation Area at Monroe Lake on Saturday, May 20th, beginning at 4 p.m. The day includes an osprey watch while the children learn all about ospreys. They will practice with binoculars and hike along the lake shore to view an osprey nesting platform. The event is for children ages 6 to 12. Sign up at bit.ly forward slash k2p dash 2023 dash osprey. A Snared in the Spider's Web program is planned for Friday, May 26th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Monroe Lake Paintown State Recreation Area. Meet at the campground playground to learn how spiders spin their webs. Weave your spider web at the craft table and play spider web games. Join Indiana native plant expert David Moe at Brown County State Park on Saturday, May 27th from 1 to 2 p.m for a highly informative session on edible plants. Learn how to identify plants, what their uses are, and rules for collecting in Indiana State Parks. 
that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Today's news feature was produced by Zero Rose and edited by Noelle Herhusky-Schneider. Juliana Daly assembled the script, which was edited by Zero Rose. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Cade Young and Noelle Herhusky-Schneider produced and engineered today's show with Brandon Blewett. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Frank Marshallek. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the Earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.